If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the letter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 17 through 33 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 33. Now, this should be a very familiar passage to us all. In fact, we read it every Sunday, or we read a portion of it every Sunday. And so as we come to this text, it should be very familiar because we read it, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week here as a church at Alpine. And so we have kind of two lanes that we could go down this morning. We could be very technical about uh, why it is that we practice it in this way, um, why there are other denominations that practice the Lord's Supper in different ways. We could be theological in that route. Uh, but today, this morning, we're going to take the route of just the context of the text in which Paul is talking about. We're going to look at some of uh, the seemingly really harsh things that Paul says about taking the cup in an unworthy manner, and then that's why some of them are dying in the church. What is going on here? So I'm going to read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. It's going to be on the screen. Uh, you can read along in your Bible as well. It says this, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have, been, have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment." So there is a lot that Paul is saying here and a lot for us to consider this morning. And I want to start this morning by sharing a story with you that might appear unrelated at first, 
but hopefully we'll be able to make the connection here by the end of the sermon how it's connected. It's a story about my grandfather, uh, who's Russell Willie. And in the spring of 1941, 24-year-old state trooper Russell Willie was deployed to northeastern France in an attempt to capture a Nazi stronghold in World War II. And I have a picture of him uh, there. 24 years old, sent to northeastern France to fight in the war. When he got there, he was quickly thrust into the war effort. Uh, They were at at one home where they were supposed to clear out the home, and when they entered in, two of the soldiers with him were shot and killed. He was hit by a grenade, injuring his leg and his hand, knocking him unconscious, and when he woke up, he was captured by Nazi soldiers with a gun in his face. And the only reason he survived is because there was a German medic that dissuaded the German officer from shooting him. He was sent to a prisoner of war camp. In recounting the story, he said that for six months, he wore the exact same clothing, that he was never allowed to shower. He slept on rotten straw. Everyone there had lice in their head. But the worst part about being in the POW camp, he said, was that there was no food. In an interview he did um, for a Louisiana State Trooper magazine uh, years later, he said, I would have rather them beat me every day and feed me than give me no food. Eventually, um, in this POW camp that he was in, he, they were liberated by the Russians. And when I heard this story as a kid growing up, I just always figured, well, that was it. Like, he was liberated by the Russians, he got to go home, all is well with the story, but that was not the case. He had to march for two months on foot through Poland with an injured leg and arm until they were finally on a ship brought home. Now, when they finally got home, uh, he, there was a picture taken of him. I have this picture here. This is of Russell when he first got back into the States, and this is his first meal back into the States. Now, what was the worst thing he said about being in the POW camp? The fact that there was no food. And you can see the joy on his face as he ate his first meal back in the States. Now, why was this meal so great to him? I can imagine in this moment that this was probably the best meal of his life. Can't you imagine? Probably the best one in his life because in a very literal sense, he was brought from death to life. He was in a POW camp, starving to death until he was liberated, and now his first meal back, this meal symbolizes his new life. It symbolizes his freedom, and it symbolizes his journey home. In a similar way, each week when we approach the Lord's table, it is a physical reminder for us that we have been brought from death to life in Christ, that we have our new freedom in Christ, our new life in Christ, and our journey is to a home with Christ. So today, we're gonna look at it in this way. We're gonna look at our freedom in Christ, our new life in Christ, and our journey home in Christ. Let's start in verse 23 uh, and verse 24. I wanna point out something to us here that will be really important for us to comprehend uh, what Paul is saying here. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also handed over to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
So this morning, what I want to show you um, is the repetition of this Greek word, paradox, that Paul is using, and it's going to expand our understanding of this passage. I have it on the next slide here. So a very literal reading of this passage could be, for I received from the Lord what I also handed over to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over. Now, why is this reading so important? We see that paradox is translated, handed over, or delivered all throughout the New Testament and the Septuagint in the Old Testament. I have a few examples here for us. In Matthew eleven twenty-seven, it says, all things have been handed over, or paradox, to me by my Father, and no one knows his Son except the Father. Luke 10, he says it again, all things have been handed over, paradox, to me by my Father. Romans 4, 25, Paul expounds on this handing over by saying, he was handed over, paradox, to death for our sins and was raised to new life for our justification. Why is this important for us to see? Paul is not necessarily recounting a time to us when Jesus was betrayed. That happened. But you see, what happened on that night was not an accident. Jesus didn't just get caught up in a wrong crowd with a bad apple among his disciples. Jesus willingly laid down his life by being obedient to the Father. You see, Jesus, on that night, was handed over to death by his Father. When we come to the table, we remember this, that Jesus was handed over. And in an act of divine obedience, the divine will, Jesus broke the bread that represents his body, and he says to us, this is for you. So when we gather each morning on Sunday and we take the bread, we're to remember these things. That Isaiah 53, 6, that the Lord gave him up or handed him over. Isaiah 53, 12, speaking of Jesus, he bore the sins of many, and on account of their iniquities, he has handed over. When we gather to the Lord's table, we remember three things. First, we remember God's will. Isaiah 53 says this, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. When we come to the table, we are reminded that Jesus' death was not an accident. It was the Lord's will in Jesus' obedience. Second, we see that Paul places emphasis on Christ's obedience to Jesus being handed over. Jesus breaks his body and gives it to us. And when we take the bread, we see our freedom because he gave up his life unto death. And we were numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many to make intercession for us. That's at the end of Isaiah 53. In the second way, verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. When we take the cup, we are to remember God's provision. We make the connection with the Lord's Supper to Passover with this command that Jesus says to do this in remembrance of me. If you remember in Exodus, I believe it's 12, yeah, 12, 14, they are to remember Passover. It's a command that Passover is to be a day of remembrance for you, which connects us to the day in which they would place blood 
of the spotless lamb on the doorpost so that their lives would be spared. When we take the Lord's Supper, we take the blood of the cup and we remember God's provision to send Christ. When we take the cup, we also remember Christ's sufficiency. Colossians 1.19, I don't believe I have this on the screen, but it says this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all thing, himself all things, whether things on the cross or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. We remember God's provision, Christ's sufficiency, that the perfect spotless lamb is enough to cover our sins. But when we take the cup, do you know what we also celebrate? Our security. You see, the blood is the new covenant in Christ Jesus that cannot be broken. Hebrews 10 uh, verses 9 says this, Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Paul is certain in Romans that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. When we take the, the bread and the cup, we are reminded of God's will, Christ's obedience, and our freedom, but we're also reminded of God's provision, Christ's sufficiency, and our security. And this is our freedom in Christ. And Jesus offers this to anyone who will believe. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. And this is what makes the gospel, according to Paul, and according to us as we read it, so wonderful. It makes it so wonderful in this way, that it's not the gospel is not based on your status, your worth, your nationality, your gender. It's not based on your lineage or your prospects. It's not based on what you have done or what you have thought. Jesus and his work alone is what salvation is based on. Salvation is based on Christ's work alone. And this work, Jesus took on humility, service, love, and sacrifice. And this is why Paul is speaking so harshly to them in the opening lines. He says, your meetings do more harm than good. Because when they gather together, they are not celebrating, they're not remembering this humility, service, and love of Christ Jesus. They're actually doing the opposite. When they should be gathering to proclaim these truths, by their actions, they are proclaiming the opposite by reversing Christ's humility and making it about status. Remember, Paul says that there are some among you that are eating their fill, they're getting drunk on the wine, and then there are others that have nothing to eat. Now, I have an image here of what a uh, first century Roman home would look like. Now, remember that Christians gathering in the first century, they were not held in large public spaces, so they wouldn't gather in a building like this today, but rather in private homes. An archaeological study of Roman houses during this period has shown that the dining room, the triclinium, was a small private room that was reserved for higher status guests. 
a number of surviving texts from this period testify to this status where they would find this small room and it would be reserved for the wealthy and the elite and those who had honor in them. And this idea isn't far from our imagination. We've all gone into maybe a new situation or a new setting where we might not know a lot of people there. And so you want a friend or you know, a buddy to tag along with you because you have all of this anxiety of walking into a new place where you don't know anybody. It's unfamiliar. And so if you walk in alone and you see somebody, you know, it's just like, oh, finally you got you know, a buddy, somebody safe to walk with you and navigate awkward conversations and move along. Now imagine this, in a setting with new believers, probably about 40 or 50 that would gather in this home, and imagine a setting where hostile cultures gathered, so Jew and Gentile, they gather, they don't like each other. Or imagine a a church now where different genders, men and women, gather together, and this isn't a society that had a particularly high view of women. Imagine a place where rich and poor gather, wealthy and destitute, or even slaves and freemen. And imagine that you are one of these uh, poorer gatherers that come to the church, and maybe you had to work, or maybe you're a slave that had to work that day, and the gathering is happening later, and so you get there, and all the food is gone, people are drunk, but then there's, everybody is huddled up into a corner, and what do you feel? You feel totally out of place. You feel like, ah, you're right, I, I don't belong here. And this is what Paul says, is that it's bringing humiliation to those We've felt this anxiety of going to an unfamiliar place, but it drives deeper. For the poor who have nothing, when they come to the gathering, they were reminded that they are poor, that they are cut off, and they aren't welcome. For those in the church that were slaves and they come, they are made to feel less than. And Paul says, this is not the manner in which the church operates. The Lord's table is to welcome the outcast. Consider Jesus' teaching on the parable of the wedding feast, where he tells them to call the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Consider the prophet Isaiah speaking of this Messiah, the one that's coming, that he's going to preach the good news to the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. So the Lord's Supper should not be marked by just the memory of Christ, but also the way of Christ. The Lord's Supper should not just be marked by the memory, but the way. To do this in remembrance of him is to remember and act out his life of humility, love, generosity, and sacrifice. So this is the new life that we should operate with in Christ. Consider Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. I believe I have it on the screen. It says this, follow God's example Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Verse 8, for, once you once, for you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Be careful, then, how you live your life, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
the Lord's will for us as we gather to the table is that there would be no division among us, but that we would gather as one in Christ Jesus. So we see that the Lord's table reminds us of our freedom in Christ, our new life in Christ, but it also reminds us of our journey home to Christ. The Lord's Supper every week is a reminder that we are not yet home, that we are not yet where we belong. Remember what Paul says in verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we come to the table, as we do this week in and week out, what are we proclaiming when we gather at this table? Do we consider what it means for us to take this meager piece of bread and this little cup and what it means for us in our lives? Paul has this to say for the church, what they're proclaiming. In verse 27, he says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So let's, let me close in these three ways and, and sum up what Paul is saying in the last point. So first, we see that the Lord's table must express the community's unity as a covenant people of God. That there are no divisions among us that we see our new life in Christ Jesus. Second, we see that the Lord's Supper focuses our attention of Jesus' death and his second coming. And then third, we see that the Lord's Supper is an occasion for us to ponder God's judgment. Now, several years ago, or I've, I've just heard it in various churches, um, when someone is explaining the Lord's Supper, uh, they might say something to the extent of, um, if you take the cup in an unworthy manner, it will not go well for you. And so, like, instantly, like, it's, uh, what am I doing? Is there anything unworthy in me? Like, any sin at all? Like, you know, you're, you start wrecking your mind with it. Some Christians are so acutely uh, conscious of their own guilt and unworthiness that they shy away from the Lord's Supper because intuitively they recognize that their lives are laid bare before God. But first, when we see the Lord's table, when we see communion, we must first see that it's an invitation of grace and not condemnation. That it's first an invitation of God's broken body and his blood spilt for us. And that in any case, even if we are to shy away from the Lord's table, we cannot ultimately avoid accountability to God by staying away. Second, we see that the Lord's Supper provides an occasion for us to exercise discernment about our own lives in preliminary anticipation of God's end-time judgment. This does not mean that sinless perfection is a prerequisite for eating and drinking. If so, that would mean none of us could come to the table. It does mean, however, that this supper calls us again and again to confess our sin and to open ourselves to leading a new life to live as Christ has lived, to live in love and charity to our neighbor. So each week when we gather 
at the table, we should remember the words in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Notice that he doesn't say merciful and gracious. He says faithful and just. Why is he just? Because he is the just one. He is the just God and the just sacrifice. Uh, Romans and Paul says he is the just and justifier of our faith. He is the one that can proclaim us just, and he is the one that is the just sacrifice for us. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just. Tim Keller uh, says this, that what was required at the table for us to share in this Lord's Supper today, that Jesus was truly abandoned so that you only feel abandoned, but you're not. When Jesus Christ was in the garden of Gethsemane and the ultimate darkness was coming down on him and he knew it was coming, he did not abandon you. He died for you. If Jesus Christ didn't abandon you in his darkness, the ultimate darkness, why would he abandon you now? The the table is this proclamation. You see, the founders of the other notable world religions, the big ones that everyone follow, all of those founders, they died peacefully surrounded by their followers and a knowledge that their movement was growing. In contrast, Jesus died in disgrace, disgrace, betrayed, denied, and abandoned by everyone, even his father. Other world religions teach salvation through assent to God, through good works and moral virtue, ritual observances, and transformation of consciousness. In in contrast, Christianity is about salvation through God descending to us. This is the great difference between Christianity and every other philosophical and religious system. The table that we gather is a reminder that God has descended to us. If you could... Uh, bring that picture of my grandfather back up. You know what else is neat about this picture? Is that once he was in the war uh, and once his parents received that missing in combat letter, that they did not know where he was, that when he returned home, that this picture was printed in every major newspaper in the country. Not only that, it was the way that his parents found out he was alive. Can you imagine the joy that they had? Now imagine this. When we gather at the table, it is the proclamation that we are not lost. Jesus says that when one sinner confesses, heaven rejoices. So you can imagine that as you come to the table today and you confess your sin, that heaven is rejoicing. It is not this, finally, he got it together. Like, finally, he confessed. I was waiting. How long it would take him to do it? No, heaven rejoices at the fact that you are in Christ Jesus. When we gather at the table, heaven rejoices when we confess our sins. When we gather at the table, it proclaims that we are alive and that we are headed home. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we're eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is gone to prepare a place for us. And this table 
this bread, what we do every Sunday is a reminder of Christ crucified and him coming again. Now, I've grown up in a church uh, tradition uh, that uh, if you maybe were baptized as a kid and maybe you strayed away in your life, um, that they'll have like a rededication or a, a baptism of rededication. Maybe you've, you've seen that. And, you know, that might be legitimate in some circumstances. Maybe they, you know, they're, they really didn't know what they were professing to. Uh, maybe that they were just following a friend, you know, whatever it is. But if it, at any point in your life that you've given your life to Jesus and you have strayed, you've wandered, you've sinned, but you feel the Spirit calling you back, you don't need to fill the baptistry back up. You simply come to the table and you receive his body broken and his blood spilt out for you. This is our reminder of Christ's great love for us that he's come, he's gone to prepare a place for us. Let's pray together. Jesus, I, I pray that we could understand just slightly just the significance of what has taken place in God's will and your obedience and our freedom in you. Father, help us to not do this lightly. Help us to remember these things that your death is for us. And, and by doing that, I pray that you make our sin ever present before us. Help us to feel the weight of our sin. But Father, help us to feel the grace that you give. Father, as, as those of us come to the table this morning and we remember your sacrificial death and Father, that we proclaim that you're returning. Father, I pray that we can confess our sins to ourselves and one another to you, Jesus. And that Father, that we can experience the grace, mercy, and love that is found at the cross of Christ. Father, if there's anyone here that is wandering or has gone astray or does not know if they believe, Father, I, I pray that today that you convict and move in them to let them see that your offer still stands. Father, that they are waiting to rejoice in heaven. So Jesus, I pray that you call this church to yourself to understand your love and your goodness. It's in your name we pray.